For several Sundays now, we have been looking and considering John chapter 17, so if you have your Bibles, we'll make our way there eventually here, page 1286 in your pew Bible. We've been looking in our series, sermon series on answering the question, when Jesus is praying for us, when he's praying for his people, when he's praying for his church and for our church, what is he praying for? What does he include in those prayers? What is Jesus concerned about? What does he yearn for in his people? We've already noted in previous messages that he has been praying that our church would be a united church, chapter 17, verses 20 to 24. We've devoted a whole sermon on the fact that Jesus prays that our church be a joyful church, that we be a holy or sanctified church, verses 14 to 17 of John, chapter 17 that we be consecrated, fully devoted to him. And Jesus knows that our church will be ineffective and that we as his people will be ineffective if we are characterized by the opposite of those things. If we are characterized by divisiveness, if we are characterized by discouragement, if we are characterized by disloyalty to him, obviously it will have a huge impact on the kingdom. And therefore, Jesus, in John chapter 17, is prayed for his church's unity. He prayed for his church's joy and their consecration to him on that occasion because they didn't know this, the disciples, but he was about to commission them and give them a huge responsibility and privilege to share. And so therefore, this morning, we're looking at this John 17. We're going to look at verses 11 to 18. And notice that Jesus is praying that our church be a missional church, a missional church. We be on mission for Christ. Let's look what he prays here in John 17, verse 11. And I am no more in the world, and yet they themselves, he's talking to his father in prayer, they are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me. Keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now notice these next two verses. As you did send me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Now if you look in your bulletin, at the order of service, if you have a bulletin near you, you'll notice there in the column underneath the order of service, at the bottom of the page, we have listed there our mission statement. Now this mission statement reflects an important emphasis as we understand the role and the responsibility of we, the people of God in this place, 
And you'll notice that this mission statement is going to line up in ways of what we've been saying in the previous sermons about what Jesus is praying for. For example, the gospel is to be treasured by our church. Why? Because when we treasure the gospel, we're going to be filled with what? Joy. In every circumstance, in every situation. And if our church, at that point, if the gospel is to be lived out by our church, then that means that we will be unified sinners who have been saved by grace and will be motivated as people who, rather than by nature, are self-focused, we will be people who are repentant and who align ourselves with God's ways and with God's priorities if we live out the gospel. And then lastly, if the gospel is to be proclaimed, by his people, by our church, by us. And so the good news about Jesus, who lived his sinless life, and then who offered himself as a substitute for sinners like you and me in his death, and then victoriously was raised from the dead, is not meant, this gospel, is not meant to be something that is to be featured in a museum somewhere as this is a wonderful thing that we can now look at and and uh, find people to come and read it and say, oh, that's, that's amazing, what an amazing event that must have been. Some kind of display that people just file past and goes, oh, that was quite interesting, a, one, a unique, one-of-a-kind event. No, the gospel was meant to be proclaimed as that which is a life-changing message far and wide to all the people of the world. I don't know how many of you go to Panera Bread, but I've gone there a number of times uh, with lunch appointments and things, um, and they have a mission. And their mission is to carefully follow well-designed and well-thought-through recipes so that they bake all these carbs. I just love carbs, and so that's one of the reasons I like Panera. So all of these wonderful breads and uh, various pastries and things, that uh, bagels and whatever, and they bake all these things so that what? so that you can just display them in these nice glass containers and have people come in them and just admire them? Do you think that's their real mission statement? I don't think so. Their mission statement is what? Obviously they want to make money, but the way that we're there, beyond that is they're making these items, baking them and preparing them and making them presented in such a way that people will what? Enjoy them, partake of them, taste them, be nourished in them. And so similarly, the gospel is not just something that is to be set on a shelf somewhere. It is that which is so precious and so life-changing, so wonderful. It is that which we are now privileged to be part of sharing and making sure other people similarly can partake, can consume, and can be transformed by it. So I want to consider this morning three insights into this text of Scripture as this mission that God has given to us, His people, and he's praying that we would fulfill this. So let's think about what the mission is. First of all, a church on mission is a church that it's sent into the world. Into the world. Now, as I've thought about this, Jesus is praying for all these different aspects and characteristics for his people. I've thought, you know, well, isn't it true that the church of Jesus Christ will be united? It will be unendingly joyful and enjoying fullness of joy. It will be absolutely holy excuse me, when the church is gathered together someday in the, in the wonderful confines of heaven. Isn't that true? 
Get a, can I get an amen out of that? Yeah. Uh, yeah. There'll be a day when there's absolute joy, absolute holiness, and absolute uni unity. Wouldn't it make sense then for God the Father, in answer to Jesus' prayer for a united, joyful, holy church, to go ahead and just grant the request by glorifying the church and bringing the church into the bliss of full redemptive glory? The answer would be, he certainly could have done that. So the question is, why? Why does he have the church remain here? And the answer, of course, is there's something Jesus is longing to see, that the Father also is longing to see, that the church cannot and the church will not do in heaven. And that is to evangelize the lost. Jesus prays that our church will be a missional church in that sense. That's why he says, I'm praying that I've sent them into the world. The church is not to be hunkered down into a holy huddle unto itself, cut off from all contact in the unbelieving world, but we are sent into the world. And that's why I had us in our scripture reading hear that passage of scripture again, which Fred read so well for us, as this strategic assignment that our master and our commander and our Lord has given to his people, Matthew 28, 20, the first key word there is what? Go. Go and make disciples of all nations, of all people groups, of all language uh, groups around the world, baptizing them in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I command you. We also read at the end of Mark's Gospel, this particular interesting repetitive theme where Jesus says, go into all the world and preach the Gospel to what? To just a few handful of people? No, to all creation, to everyone. So Jesus told the early apostles, and by the way, the word apostles means what? Sent ones. Sent ones. It's from the same word we get from Jesus said, I sent them into the world. Same word from which we get apostles in the original language. And the church of these apostles, they were designed, they would be to sent outward with the gospel, crossing over cultural barriers, crossing over linguistical barriers, racial barriers, religious barriers, political boundaries, whatever it was, they were to keep going out with the gospel. And that's why that Acts 1-8 verse is so helpful to see the impact of what Jesus is trying to say to his people there. Their understanding was everything's going to happen right here in Jerusalem. This is the hub. This is where we've always gathered here. We've always come from the four corners of the earth and we gather here because these are significant events here. And Jesus is saying, wait a minute. I want you to be going from Jerusalem here as the hub and I want you to be going outward into Judea, the surrounding area, and then he says what? Samaria. Now, when I say Samaria, nobody reacts. Nobody thinks, oh, my. No one gasps with shock or dismay. But that's almost like saying, go, go into enemy territory. Go into where you know you're going to be hated. Go into an area where there's such racial tension between the, the, who you are and who these people are. Go even into that area and then the uttermost parts of the earth. So if you think of it as concentric circles... And Jesus is saying, you're at the center here, and what we're to do with this gospel is that it's to be a centrifugal force. It moves from the center in an outward position. And so the church, initially, in its ministry of centrifugal uh, effects, responded to that commission with some what? Strong reticence, you should say. Well, wait a minute. 
are you telling me I'm to, wait a minute, you mean you really want me to go that in that direction? Consider Peter, for example. Peter was raised in a nice, kosher home where they followed all of the kosher regulations, I'm sure. He was trained in his growing up years to avoid Gentiles. He was to have nothing to do with them. He never played in a fellow uh, Gentile friend's home. You just don't do that. And so here, visiting in a Gentile's home, for him as an adult, was out of the question. But if you get to Acts chapter 10, verse 25, very interesting thing happens. God has to give to Peter a vision to try to help him understand. Now that the gospel has come, now that there's this wall that's been broken down between Jew and Gentile, now that you have news that talks about reconciling people who had nothing in common with each other prior, now can be joined together into this wonderful family of God through the gospel. He says, now, he says, I want you to go into a Gentile's home. And the amazing verse in Acts 10, 25, it says, and he entered. He entered into this home. That's a big deal. Doesn't seem like it when you read the text, but it's a huge deal. Because what's he doing there? He's going outward. He is sent into the world. Matter of fact, he's going into the home of a fella who was what? A Roman centurion named Cornelius who happens to be a what? Gentile. And so what Peter is modeling for us here and what he learned in the early church was that the gospel moves us into the world. I find it very wonderful to be a part of a church that has a history in which the church has sent its own members outward across cultural and language barriers over the years. I'm told that one of our earliest missionaries that was called from our church, who actually left our church and went to somewhere of a new culture, was Ted Overton, who went to Ecuador, served with HCJB, a great radio ministry, broadcast the gospel all over the world. Then there was Herbie Murata, who was sent to Japan, which, by the way, was, for those who may not know, one of our enemies in World War II. And here he is, after that war, having a burden for the people of Japan, sent there, ministered there for many years. I think he's retired now in, in Hawaii, I believe. Then there's Nancy Davis, who was sent from this church into a 50-year ministry of bringing the gospel to children through Bible Club movement. And then there was Karen Cortez at the time, who now is Karen Perez. We sent her to Czech Republic, and uh, Fred Perez had a different uh, agenda there and, and uh, won her heart and brought her back home, but that's where she was serving for a term in the Czech Republic. And Peter Wolfing, our beloved brother, was right here worshiping among us, even in the last years that uh, I've been ministering here. And the Lord called him, and he was willing to follow that call and serve in Chad, a very, very challenging place to serve, and now in Mexico, in Oaxaca. And we're seeing a generation of young people willing to say, you know, I'm willing to serve, I'm willing to go, I'm willing to be a part of what God is doing beyond just right here in my neighborhood. It's amazing. These are exciting days. But let me just clarify something else for us here in our thinking. If, we are, if Jesus is praying that we be a, a missional church, the missional church does not just include the people who are willing and who are called specifically to go across cultural borders and boundaries and national boundaries, but it also includes what? A local sending. A sending of us who are here, we're also sent ones. We're also to be on mission for Christ. 
And so every week we gather here on the Lord's Day, praise God, and we celebrate the gospel. We celebrate our God in worship. We celebrate uh, the time we have with each other and ministering and encouraging each other and taking an interest in each other. But after we assemble, we're what? We are sent out as Christ's ambassadors into the people of Lake Grove, Center Reach, Setauket, St. James and Ronkonkoma, Stony Brook, and wherever else you live or wherever you work. See, our best opportunities for evangelism take place where our lives are intersecting with unbelievers. And that could be in the gym, that could be in the office, in the neighborhood we live in, it could be in the school where we attend, in the store where we shop, the restaurant where we eat, eat out, and all those kinds of things. That's where we are sent out to have a role in bringing the good news to those around us. See, Jesus prayed that his people be sent into the world. And he prayed that they would be made holy through the truth of his word and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because when we're out in the world, as we know, if you've ever worked among people who are worldly, you're aware there's a lot of antagonism to the things of God. And what's important is that we as God's people, if we're to be in the world, but not of the world. So what are you talking about? Well, Matthew 5 has a very helpful comment here, I think, in that Jesus talks about the fact that he uses salt as an example. He says, I'm going to compare you people, my, my, my people to salt. And so he doesn't pull, pick out a salt shaker. I meant to bring some with me, I forgot. Uh, we have just the um, Morton salt, right? And then we have the now we have the sea salt, which is another kind we have now, and we have all these different kinds of salt. Uh, it's been rather refined, it's, it's crystallized, it's something that's rather pure in its essence. But when Jesus was using salt in that culture, uh, it was not pure. It was mixed in with all sorts of other uh, leftover minerals. And what, I guess evaporation is how they got it, gypsum and other things. And so after a while, that salt could lose its taste, it would lose its effect. And the primary use of salt in that time was not just to make the food taste good on pretzels and salty snacks. They used salt to preserve meat because they had no refrigeration. So when you apply salt to meat, it dries it out and therefore preserves it from rotting. So our witness as the people of God loses its effectiveness if we, become, if we adopt worldly ways Worldly ways of thinking, worldly ways of behaving, worldly values. And our gospel witness is much more effective when the God's people live lives of integrity and honesty and humility. When those are the things that people see in us, then the gospel is much more, uh, has much more of a receptive uh, uh, presentation. And so each week, according to Titus chapter 2, we have the opportunity to adorn the gospel with our lives, how we conduct ourselves with our good deeds. Jesus did not say in that same text there in Matthew 5 that we are the light of our church building. He said you are the light of the world. The world. And therefore he says people are to see and hear through us the good news of the gospel. Now, Jesus knew what he was doing when he sent us into the world because he knows that most people come to faith through the influence of what? In our culture, it's usually family members, 
It's small group Bible studies. It's usually a conversation people have one-on-one with, uh, you know, over lunch or with them somewhere at Starbucks, in a home somewhere, or after a church service. And the reach of our, our church is greatest outside the walls of this building. Right? Just think about it. As Max Stiles says in his helpful book, which, by the way, I'll plug right now, evangelism book, only about 100 pages. It's a very small book, a very helpful, encouraging, positive, and practical way to encourage us as a church to see the church as a church involve evangelism. There are a bunch of copies out here on the book table. I encourage you to read that. Very, very helpful in my own life. He says this, There is no way we could ever fit into our church worship center all the non-Christians with whom the members of our church are in contact with weekly. You can't get them all in here. If you think about all the people that we have interaction with throughout the week among us. And so we always, of course, we're not saying don't ever invite an unbeliever to church. That's, don't ever hear me saying that. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying the exact opposite of that. I'm saying because you have contact with these people, we're always encouraging you to bring them to us. Bring them here. Bring them a part of your world. Bring them in to see what the gospel looks like among a body of Christ here, among the family here of Christ. And what we have opportunities then, particularly with Christianity Explored, is wonderful opportunity to very patiently and slowly explain the truth of who Christ is in a wonderfully non-threatening way. Welcoming questions, welcoming the opportunity to show them in the gospel of Mark, who is Jesus, why did he come, what does it mean to know him? I hope you'll participate as best you can. And so when's the last time, I guess, you know, you, you offered to ask questions or to suggest to someone, here's something to read, here, would you like to borrow this book, and then we could talk about it? Uh, when's the last time you offered to say, well, we, would you be interested in having a Bible study? We could go through the life of Jesus, just read it and consider it. When's the last time you met, offered to meet with someone over coffee at Starbucks to talk about spiritual matters? You say, well, I'm a young mother, I'm very busy. I realize, we'll talk about that in a minute, how busyness is a problem. But the point here is that what? God has strategically placed us in the world to be light, to be salt, and to be on mission. All right, the second point I want to make here, I've got to move along here. <clears throat> the missional church is sent by Christ. Sent by Christ. <clears throat> he says there in verse 18, As you did send me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Notice that Jesus did not pray for a small, elite group of volunteers <clears throat> who, who just sort of gradually raised their hands and said, well, yeah, maybe I'm willing to, to somehow be a sent one on mission and uh, I'll, I'll do my part maybe to take some gospel witness somewhere. No, the commission is not optional. That's the point A. The commission that Christ gave to his church is not optional. Because he, has a, he is one who is with divine authority. He's commissioned every member of his church. And one of his last statements before he ascended to heaven, which you read just a little while ago, Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That covers the whole gamut. There's no one who has more authority than him. So therefore, nobody can trump him. And so he says, as a person who has all that authority, he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Understanding means all of his people. Now, he does not have six different ways to bring the gospel to the world. He doesn't have plan 16B and, you know, 
42a, it doesn't have all these different approaches. His divine, we are his divinely appointed proclaimers of good news. There is no plan B. There's no plan B. The sending of his church was Jesus' plan from the beginning. Long before Jesus was born, God made it clear that God's redemption through his Messiah was meant for all the peoples of the earth, not just for the Israelites. So much that we read, the, the, the statement made to Abraham was this, in Genesis chapter 12. God says, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, God says. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will, curse, I will bless those who bless you, I will curse those who curse you, and all the peoples of the earth, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. And he's talking about this seed now, this, this plan of through Abraham and his seed is coming a Messiah, and that Messiah is going to bring salvation to all the people of the earth, not just to the Jews. And if you read Psalm 67, and I don't know if I could read the whole thing here, but let's just turn there if you will. Psalm 67. Psalm 67 is a great window into God's heart and what God's mission is intended to be and what he expects to see happen. And here's another indication of that, Psalm 67, written by, um, <clears throat> it doesn't say it was written by, sorry. God be gracious to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on the earth. Your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you will judge the peoples with uprightness and guide the nations of the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its produce. God, our God, bless, blesses us. God blesses us that all the ends of the earth may fear him. So the whole idea here is that Jesus expected his people to proclaim the news of his kingdom beyond the borders of Israel. So he says in Matthew 24, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony. So then that raises the question for you and me, what are our excuses for not doing what he's encouraged us and told us and commissioned us to do? And probably one of us, one of the more widely known excuses, which oftentimes can be true of me, so I'm being honest here, is that we don't know as many non-Christians as we used to because we tend to have oriented ourselves in the circles of our Christian family and friends. So one of the things it requires of us is to think strategically. How am I able to encourage and develop and build relationships with people who are not believers? Other things to some people may be that we are found, other things are more urgent in my life. I've got lots to do. I've got a long list. You, don't believe, you won't believe how busy my life is. Granted, there are lots of things to be done. Nobody's denying that. But as we all know, the long list of things to be done has to be, strat has to be strategized. We have to think what is the most important and what do we put on the list of our busyness that is important and that we put it on the list because we think it's important. A lot of that is our own determination of seeing, is this important? Taking time to develop opportunities and contacts and conversations and, and ministry um, uh, impact with people who need to know Christ. 
Others of us might say, well, I don't feel adequately prepared. Can't we all say that on some level? We all, I'm sure, feel various forms of inadequacy. Uh, obviously, we can't answer every question. Obviously, we can't always have insight into what the person is saying. We don't really, uh, can't, come, can't come across with complete answers. But that's not the point. The point is to just declare what is the good news. Explain who Christ is. Explaining what God has done in Christ. That's what we're called to proclaim. We can't be a person that's an expert to answer everything. The question is, are we ignoring the assignment? So I would suggest one thing we could do is to plan. Make a plan. Begin to think in your mind, who can I have lunch with? Who can I invite? Who can we have over to our home? Who can I make sure that I do a breakfast appointment with this person? Who can I write a note with? Who can I give a book to? Who can I now follow up with the comment they made the other day, having another conversation about that and following up on that concern? Indicate that we're praying for them. Helping to be faithful. That's what we're called to do. Faithful to just sow the seed. Do you know that Jesus said that he, he threw the seed, the farmer threw the seed all over in the, in the garden? And what happened? Some didn't come at all. Some, didn't, some was stolen away. Some didn't come up very well at all. Some died off later. But some brought forth great fruit. Farmer did a good job spreading the seed. But it lands on different hearts. Just be faithful. Just be faithful. Some people won't be thrilled with what you have to say. That's okay. You can continue to share with others or keep praying for them. But take a risk. And even read a book. I suggest again, if you find yourself in need of some motivation, read this little book. It helps to ignite the fire within you one more time. It is inconvenient. It is time-consuming. But I say again, it ought to be a matter of prayer. If we pray about it, if it's something that we're longing to see, Lord, would you open up a door for me? Would you make it something that seems very clear that you want me to speak to that person in that situation? Isn't that what Paul said? Pray that there will be an open door of opportunity to make known the gospel and that I might explain it clearly and boldly with courage. What a great prayer. If you're praying that prayer, watch out. God's going to give you opportunities. And we can make Christ known. All right, real quickly then to number three. A missional church is sent like Christ. Here the key word is, in verse 18, as... As you, he's talking to the Father, as you, God the Father, have sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And then, interestingly enough, if you want to compare John 20, verse 21, John 20, 21, Jesus says, As the Father has sent me, I also send you. He repeats it again. And so we're reminded of what? God the Father sent his Son. So as we look at Jesus, he's showing us a model of evangelism. He's showing us a model of ministry. He's showing us what it means to be on mission for God. And how did Jesus carry out the gospel plan? I'd like to make a couple of real quick suggestions here. One is incarnational. His ministry was incarnational. Jesus did not remain aloof, away, sort of at a distance from lost sinners and then proceed to suspend in the clouds and sort of cup his hands and then say, Hey, this is what you people need to do. He didn't do it that way. He came down into our world and involved himself in the messiness of sinners' lives. Think about it. Jesus shared meals with all sorts of 
characters. How's that for a generic word? I mean, he raised some eyebrows with some of the people he spent time with. People were shocked, offended, bent out of shape, scandalous, they'd say. But he's right there. He's right there. Jesus took the time as he went from village to village in his normal taking part of, of doing the missional ministry. He's, he's going from place to place, and he stops. He converses with people. He takes time. He speaks to them in ways in which he is engaging with the disenfranchised people, the nobodies of the culture, woman at the well. Nobody else is out there retrieving water. Why? Because it's, she is so filled with shame. She has such a horrible reputation among her, her fellow citizens of the village. Nobody wants anything to do with her. She comes in the middle of the day, the hottest part of the day. Jesus engages her in conversation. He has a compassion for people who are the nobodies, as well as what? The shakers and movers of the culture. He'll sit down and talk to them too, with all their fancy rings and fancy robes and fancy this and whatever, entourage that follows them around, whatever. He's willing to talk to those people as well. He proclaimed the gospel to large crowds and to individuals. He did not set up a camp in Jerusalem and wait for everybody to come to him. He lived life with people took an interest in them, engaged them in conversations that were designed to really start to address heart issues in their lives and to somehow begin to help them realize that he is offering to them an incredibly wonderful gift of eternal life if they trust, believe, and surrender and repent and follow him. I would also suggest to you, and I don't have time to develop this either, but you want to learn how to be a bit more effective in our evangelism? Read Jesus' ministry and listen to the questions he asks. He asks Great questions. Not that he doesn't know the answers. He already knows what they're thinking. But he asks the questions to engage them, to draw them out, and to see an amazing opportunity then to speak to whatever they say and to address some of those things. So incarnational. Next thing I would say also is that Jesus ministered the gospel with a balance of grace and truth. A balance of grace and truth. Boy, do we need this. He compassionately brought a message of forgiveness and restoration to those who what? Who felt and were weighed down by their guilt. Who walked around every day clothed with shame. Clothed with the weight of their sin and they, they, they couldn't get away from it. And Jesus is coming giving words of forgiveness, words of hope, words of, of offering them uh, complete uh, acceptance. And to those who prided themselves on their own self-righteous deeds and who dismissed Jesus and rejected him, who didn't want anything to do with him, he spoke confrontive words and he warned them of the dire consequences of their unbelief. He did not hold back from explaining the cost of what it meant to follow him. And so this balance of grace and truth is beautiful in the ministry of Jesus. Oh, that we could uh, help grow in that area. Another point I'll just make here is that Jesus also made known the gospel with love. Folks, if we ever miss this, we're doing any kind of mission for the wrong reason. A love for God, a love for Christ, a love for lost sinners. We're not doing it to put a notch on our belt. We're not doing it because out of guilt, trying to make ourselves right with God so he'll love us. We're doing it out of a motivation of love for God 
And here is Jesus with his selfless love, giving to others, responding patiently to those who are slow to believe. And when you think about it, do we have that love operating in our hearts? I came across, again, the writings of Mark Dever, pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church, in his book uh, on evangelism. He says this, We share the gospel because we love people. And we don't share the gospel because we don't love people. Instead, we wrongly fear them. We don't want to cause awkwardness. We want their respect. And after all, we figure if we try to share the gospel with them, we'll look foolish. And so we are quiet. And we protect our pride at the cost of their souls. In the name of not wanting to look weird, we are content to be complicit in their being lost. As one friend said, quote, I don't want to be the stereotypical Christian on a plane. In other words, he's saying not to have a cold and indifferent and uncaring attitude about the lost people around us. Jesus was not that way. The love he enjoyed with his father was eternal and constantly expressed in his missional life, and therefore that love flowed over to all those he dealt with around him. Oh, would that love for God be further stirred up within us as we celebrate the gospel, realizing that we love him because he first loved us in the gospel. And that's why we love these people. And they're hard to love. Yes, that's what love does. It's not always easy. That's, that's why we call it love. May I just say one more thing about this, that God in Christ, in his missional ministry, this is not even in your notes, he did so faithfully and patiently. Faithfully and patiently. Because if you ever read the Gospels, you realize what? So many people didn't buy into Jesus' ministry. They didn't buy into his words. They didn't buy into his miracles. They, re- they criticized him. They rejected him. And yet he just kept on proclaiming the good news. He would keep going. He would minister to more and more. And let me just remind you what evangelism, if you define it as this. John Stott said this. To evangelize does not mean to win converts. In other words, I have no control over the response that people make when I share the gospel with them. It is simply to announce the good news irrespective of the results. So the pressure is not on me to manipulate people and to push them into a corner. It is to say, do you realize what God has done? Do you realize why the world is so bad? Because we have done this before God. We've abandoned him, turned and gone his ways. And God, the one who made the world, now we're cut off from him. And do you know what God has done? He has given his son to you. And we just explain what God has done in Christ. Call them to repent. Call them to believe. Some will, some won't. And let's never forget that sometimes the seeds we put down initially don't look like anything has come. You never know, though, what will happen down the road. And with this, I'll close. Again, from Dever's book on evangelism, he tells a story of a man who was converted. His name was Mr. Short. Don't have a first name? That's what his name, Mr. Short. Because this is talking about something that happened a long time ago, back in the 1700s. He was, Mr. Short was a, a New England farmer, God bless him. Have you ever seen those stones they have in the stone walls in New England? That guy pulled a lot of stones out of those farms up there, I'm telling you. Anyway, he's a farmer up there in New England. And uh, 
in the middle of the 1700s, he lived a long time, he's in his elder, uh, older years of life. He's sitting there in his field reflecting on his long life and he recalled a sermon that he had heard back when he was a boy still living in England before he had sailed here to America. And he says the horror of him dying under the curse of God was impressed upon his mind and his soul as he meditated upon the memory of what he had heard many, many years ago as a child. And at that moment in his life, he was converted to Christ. Eighty-five years after he heard the gospel from John Flavel, the Puritan pastor. And so what's the point? The point is, as we're set, throwing out the seeds, who knows what will happen? It is God who's at work. It is God who changes people's hearts and souls. It is God who saves, but we're to be on mission. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, how we thank you for the greatness of your love for us. Oh, the wonders of the love that you have shown to us. We who in our own obstinate, our own selfish, our own arrogant ways, Lord, how you have been so patient toward us. How we thank you, Lord, that we have been privileged to come under the hearing of your word. How we thank you, Lord, for many of us who have had patient people around us praying for us, sharing the gospel with us, loving us. Lord, how deeply thankful we are. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that your love draws our hearts to you, draws our hearts to those who are still lost. And I pray, Father, that you might stir up that kind of holy love within us, a love that reminds us of the wonders of the gospel to ourselves first. And Lord, if there's anybody here today who's never really taken the time to think through the implications of living apart from you and rejecting the wondrous gift of Jesus Christ given for them, I pray, Lord, that this might be the day their heart would be moved and changed, that they might too repent and place their trust only in Christ and him alone. Father, I pray that you would continue to help us to have fresh yearnings, gospel yearnings in our hearts to be on mission for you, to be bringing the gospel to those around us. Lord, as we depart now from our time of gathering here today on the Lord's Day, as we depart and go out into the world, we pray that we might see and view the people around us through your eyes and that we might remember, Lord, we are privileged to be on mission for you and to trust you to do through us what truly is inexplainable apart from your spirit and your powerful word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.